Well, how y'all doing? When I was here before a year ago, that's about the only Tennessee language I knew. And I shared with you that uh, Linda and I felt kind of like we were missionaries going to the mission field and in language school uh, for the first year. Uh, so sometimes I still feel like that. And once in a while, I even have to ask the person, what was that you said? Because I can't quite understand that. Fortunately, there are just a ton of people that live, moved there from California, and Californians speak right, so, so I can understand what they're saying, you know. Uh, but since living there, and since I was here before, I have learned a few things about the South. The South, the place where tea is sweet and accents are sweeter. Summer starts in April, and boy, how I know that. Macaroni and cheese is a vegetable. Front porches are wide and words are long. Pecan pie is a staple. Y'all is the only proper noun. Chicken is fried and biscuits come with gravy. Everything is darling, and someone's heart is always being blessed. And you can say just about anything derogatory about anyone you want to say it about as long as you finish with and bless their little heart. Because if you bless their heart, you can just you can call them ugly as sin. You say, but bless their little heart, you know, they can't help it. And you can get away with just about everything. Anybody here from Tennessee? Oh, I hope not. Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> That's what I've learned about the South. Does anybody know what February 13th, 2011 was? Well, it was the last Sunday I preached in this church. <laughs> Does anybody recall what I spoke about besides about 45 minutes? What? Who said that? You're right. Do you know what scripture I used? No? Well, I probably included that in there, yeah. That is tremendous because usually when I preach on a Sunday by Monday, I can't remember what I preached about the day before, you know. I did. I preached a message about faith, how to move from fear to faith. And we looked at Psalm 46, one of my favorite psalms. Well, I'm sure glad I didn't decide to preach that sermon again because at least one person would have remembered it anyway. But uh, we're, gonna, we're going to uh, go into part two of our faith series today as we talk more about faith. Now, I don't know how long this series is, so it may require several years coming back if I only get one Sunday a year to finish this series. But anyway, we're going to move into the second part of our series on faith. But before we do that, I want to just say a few words about what God has been doing in our lives. One of my great joys of ministry has been to have a ministry to pastors. I love pastors. I've been one of those guys for 42, 43 years. And I know somewhat how they think and how they operate and some of the burdens and some of the struggles they have. And so it's been a great joy and delight for Linda and I to be involved in a ministry to pastors. And uh, I, I was telling Corey before the service that I have abandoned one approach. I mean, this ministry has been harder than I ever thought it would be. I'm a new guy moving to a new area that is different, by the way, than Southern California. We're talking about the South. We're talking about very conservative in their politics and in their church going, everybody in Tennessee is a Christian, of course. And everybody goes to church, except that isn't true. Only about 25% of the people actually go to church. Uh, and there is a church almost on every corner. And most of them are Southern Baptists. And there's some Missionary Baptists. And there's some Presbyterian. And there's also a lot of United Methodists in that area. And Church of Christ is a huge denomination in that area. So anyway, it's just a different place to be. But it's a great place to be. And we love it there. And we love the people but I told Corey before the service that I'd abandoned one approach in meeting new pastors. And that is to go up and say, hi, I'm Lyle, 
and I'm here to help you be a better pastor. They don't know me from the man in the moon. And they would probably say, and what makes you think I need to be a better pastor? So I've abandoned that approach, and I've gone to more of the networking approach of meeting a pastor, and he tells me about another pastor who tells me about another pastor. And one of the great hangouts in Mount Juliet, where we live, for pastors is Panera Bread. That has become my mobile office. In fact, I had a pastor call me one day and said, Lyle, are you in your mobile office? I'm just going by Panera Bread. I was going to stop and have a cup of coffee with you. One day I went in there. There were no less than five pastors in Panera Bread. Some were studying. Some were just visiting. And I walked by a guy, and, and he had a big book open. And I kind of looked, and I saw it was a commentary. And so I stopped, and I said, are you a pastor? He said, yes, I am. And he was from a town about uh, 30 miles from where we were. He said, I come up here once a week just to get away from things. And so we started talking. I found out he was a graduate of Biola, a graduate of Talbot. And uh, so we had a great conversation. I've seen him there a couple of times. But if I want to find pastors, I just go to Panera Bread. I love pastors, and I love pastoring pastors. But I discovered something very interesting just about a few months ago. We live in a senior adult community, okay? And, and a lot of the people are retired, and a lot of people are way older than Linda and I. But uh, anyway, we live in this senior adult community. We've got this great clubhouse. We've got a lot of good things there. One of the things they have is they, they have a, um, a military uh, club, guys that have been in the service, service club. And one of my friends that I've met since I've been there is the president of this club, and he is a retired major from the Army. And uh, he's just a really neat guy. He's in a Bible study that I attend. And so on Veterans Day, they had a special service honoring the veterans. And so I walk in, and here's Pat. He's in his full uniform, all of his medals. And I'm thinking, this guy's 67 years old, and he can still fit into his uniform. Not many guys 67 can fit in their uniform anymore. So he's fit, he's trim. And I shook his hand, and I put my arm on his shoulder. I said, Pat, I don't think I've said to you at all. I just want to thank you for serving our country and giving yourself, putting yourself on the line. He said, thank you, Lyle. And he shook my hand and he said, I want to thank you for being a pastor. And we chatted a little bit and he went off to do something. And as he walked away, I thought, wow, he's equating what I do as a pastor to how he put his life on the line and served his country. And he thanked me for being a pastor. No one, no one that I can recall in 43 years of ministry has thanked me for being a pastor. Now, get the difference. They've thanked me for being their pastor. They've thanked me for preaching a sermon or for coming and giving comfort during a time of grief or whatever. But no one has just said, thank you for being a pastor. Thank you for answering God's call in your life. I'm doing a survey. Neil, has anyone ever said that to you, just thanking you for being a pastor? Well, so far it's 100% then. As I've asked pastors and told them that story and asked them, has anybody ever just thanked you for being a pastor? And they look at me and say, no, nobody's done that. And I said, well, pay it forward, pass it on. The next time you're with a pastor, just thank him for being a pastor. So, Neil, thank you for being a pastor. Thank you for answering God's call in your life. And I didn't say that so you'll all rush up afterwards and thank him for being a pastor, you know. But, but think about that. When you meet your pastor or any pastor, to thank them for being a pastor. It's a great calling. It's a great and wonderful opportunity to serve God. Well, I have one other thing I want to say real quick, and that is, this may sound scary, 
I have not preached a sermon since February 13th in this church. Now, I didn't say that so you'll feel sorry for me. I said that because earlier Neil said, well, you've got 200 minutes to preach. Now, I figure that's a little over three hours. And not having preached for a year, I could have a lot of stuff stored up in here. So, you know, you may need to call the catering service, Neil, and have him bring in lunch or something. But I just, I just wanted you to be aware of that. So we move into this second part of this faith series this morning. And I know you already know that the Bible has a lot to say about this topic of faith. The Bible talks about weak faith, strong faith, bold faith, rich faith, abiding faith, steadfast faith, precious faith, common faith, working faith, obedient faith. Faith is all over the pages of Scripture. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The New Living Translation says faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Galatians 3.11 tells us the just shall live by faith. It doesn't say we'll live by feelings. Thank goodness because sometimes I don't feel like I have much faith. Sometimes I'm not even sure I feel like a Christian sometimes. So I don't live by feelings. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that we live by circumstances. It says they will live by faith. Now, I want you to understand something this morning. I think there's a difference between the spiritual journey and the faith journey. And I hadn't really thought about this. Just a few days ago, I picked up an article, and I started reading, and I want you to listen carefully to what this author says. Many of us want a spiritual journey, because that sounds pretty cool. But we don't want a faith journey. Now, I've asked a lot of people through my years of ministry, tell me about your spiritual journey. It was a great question if I was counseling a, a couple, a, you know, premarital counseling or whatever, and I didn't know them very well. It's a great question to open up the doors when you say, so tell me about your spiritual journey. You know, well, when I was a child, my parents took me to Sunday school, and on and on the story went. So I've thought more about the spiritual side, the spiritual journey. But this author says, it sounds pretty cool to be a faith on a spiritual journey, but not a faith journey. A journey that requires us to risk anything or to move beyond the mostly comfortable existence we have carved out for ourselves. Even when we have a sense that something is not quite right, that there is something we're holding back or holding on to that is not God. And we sense God calling us to some new level of faith. We are not willing to let go of those visible supports that have become our life. We have not yet given in to the authority of an invisible God in the places that matter most. I was a bit challenged and a bit convicted when I read that statement. Because there is a difference between the spiritual journey and being willing to be on the faith journey and live by faith and let go of some of those things if that's what God asks us to do, that we hold on to, that become our security blanket, so to speak, to walk that Faith journey. Well, you know, the Apostle Paul has some things to say about faith. In Romans 14, 23, he says, And everything that does not come from faith is sin. He states in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, We live by faith, not by sight. 
And again, the writer of Hebrews says in 11.6, And without faith, it is highly unlikely that you will please God. Is that what he said? What's he say? He says, it is impossible to please God. To say the least, those are some really powerful statements regarding faith. Ben Patterson has been a pastor, an author. He's now the campus pastor at Westmont College up in Santa Barbara. I've read some of his books, and, and I remember reading a story about Ben. This happened several years ago. He, along with his friends, three friends, decided to climb the highest peak at Yosemite. Their base camp was less than 2,000 feet from the peak, but they had to cross a large glacier in order to get to the top. Two of the most experienced climbers opened up a big gap between themselves and Ben. And since Ben was a bit competitive by nature, Ben started to look for a shortcut in order to beat them to the top. Now, guys... Why are we so competitive by nature? I know this is a guy thing. This is a guy story. I keep thinking about that. You know, we're so competitive. He's climbing this mountain. He's supposed to be safe, but those guys are ahead of me. If I go this way and take that shortcut, I bet I can beat him. Linda and I, uh, where we live, we have a great clubhouse and workout center. Actually, it kind of looks like a 24-hour fitness and so we try to get over there three mornings a week and work out and keep ourselves in as best we can and, you know, run and, and walk and ride the bike and do some leg presses and all this. Well, I like to do the leg press machine because I have a bad knee and it, I'm trying to strengthen that knee. So I start out in increments because I'm not, you know, I'm not the muscle guy. So I start out, you know, 120 and then I do some reps and then I go to 140 and then I go to 160. And that's about my top limit. Some time ago, I, uh, there was a, a lady that was using the machine, and uh, I walked over, and I looked, and she had pressed 240. And there, there some friends of ours were there, and I turned to the, this lady, a friend of ours, and I said, that lady pressed 240. How could she press 240? And she says, oh, I can do that. I said, you can't do that. And her husband said, oh, yes, she can. She's got really strong legs. And she marched over, and she sat down, she put it on 240, and she did 10. Bam, 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 just like that. And then the inevitable, horrible question came. Lyle, can you do that? Well, of course I can do that. And I said, get off the machine. I'll show you I can do that. And so I groaningly, moaningly pressed out 240 ten times. Why? Because I'm competitive. There's that competitive nature about us. Now, I do have to confess that sometimes after I finish my reps at 160 and I get up, I just take the pen and I slip it down to about 240, 260 because I want the next person that comes to say, wow, that guy's really good. He just pressed 260 pounds. I, I know I'm, I'm a sick human being and uh, <clears throat> probably plays out there. But apparently Ben was also a sick human being because he was competitive. He soon found himself trapped in a cul-de-sac of rock on top of a glacier, looking down several hundred feet of a sheer slope of ice pitched at a 45-degree angle. Ben said, I was only about 10 feet from the safety of a rock, but one little slip and I wouldn't have stopped sliding until I landed in the valley floor some 50 miles away. It was noon, warm sun, had the glacier glistening with ice, and I was stuck and I was scared. It took about an hour for his friends to reach him, and then leaning out and using an ice axe, one of them chipped out two little places for Ben to put his feet. 
And then a friend gave Ben the following instructions. He said, Ben, you must step out from where you are and put your foot where the first foothold is. And when your foot touches it without a moment's hesitation, swing your other foot across and land it next to the step. And when you do that, reach out and I will take your hand and pull you to safety. Ben said, well, that sounded real good to me, but it was the next thing he said that was a little more frightening. He said, listen carefully as you step across, do not lean into the mountain. If anything, lean out a bit. Otherwise, your feet may fly out from under you and you'll start sliding. And Ben said, I don't like to be on a precipice. When I'm on the edge of a cliff, my instincts are to lie down and hug the mountain. To become one with it, not to lean away with it. But that was what my good friend was telling me to do. I looked at him hard, real hard. Was there any reason, any reason at all? that I should not trust him. He said, I certainly hoped not. So for a moment, based solely on what I believed to be the goodwill and good sense of my friend, I decided to say no to what I felt, to stifle my impulse, to cling to the security of the mountain, and to traverse the ice safely. It took less than two seconds to find out if my faith was well-founded. And obviously, it was. Now, I gave you that testimony because in that testimony I think we find two other definitions of faith. Ben's friend said you must step out from where you are. Faith means I don't stay in the same place. I have to step out to see what God will do in my life. And then Ben's friend said you must reach out and I will take your hand and pull you to safety. That's faith. That's what God says to us in the midst of uncertain circumstances. God says faith is important. We live by faith, not by sight. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So step out, reach out. I'll take your hand, and I'll pull you to safety. We're going to look this morning at a story that's found in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. And if you read this whole chapter, as I've done, you'll come away saying, you know, Mark 5 is really the healing chapter. It's a faith chapter. Because in verses 1 to 20, we read about Jesus healing a man with demons. And you recall that story, how he casts out the demons from that man, and he's ready to destroy him. The demons say, no, 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 don't destroy it. See that herd of pigs over there? Send us into the pigs. And so Jesus does. And the pigs go wild and berserk, and they start running, and they go to the edge of the cliff, and they run right over the cliff, and they're completely destroyed. As you move on through that chapter, you get to verses 21 to 34. And in that passage, there are actually two healings that take place and two acts of faith that take place. The first part is, is Jairus' daughter. Jairus was an important man in the community. And he comes to Jesus and he said, Jesus, my daughter is sick. Would you please come so that she can be healed? And in the midst of that situation, in the midst of that picture of Jesus moving to Jairus' house, we find the woman, the suffering woman that Mark talks about in chapter 5. Verses 21 to 34, 24 to 34. We describe her as a suffering woman. Because like many others in scripture, we don't even know her name. All we know is her situation. Her world was in turmoil. Her physical need was great. No doubt she was extremely weary of all that she had endured for many, many years. Look at verse, starting at verse 24. Jesus has, has, has been talking to Jairus and he's moving now to Jairus' daughter. And so Jesus went with him, it says, that he and Jairus. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had 
Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. We don't know her name, but we do know her situation. We're told that she's been bleeding for 12 years. We're told that she's suffered greatly. She spent all the money she had. On top of this, she was only getting worse. And medical experts would lead us to believe that this woman was suffering from a chronic menstrual disorder, a perpetual issue of blood. And we need to understand that such a condition would be extremely difficult for any woman of any era. But for a Jewish woman, nothing could have been worse. Every part of her life was affected by that problem. Sexually, she could not touch her husband. Maternally, she could not bear children. Domestically, anything she touched would be considered unclean. Spiritually, she was not allowed to even enter the temple for worship. Every part of her life was affected with this problem. This woman was physically exhausted and socially considered an outcast. Verse 26 tells us that she sought the help under the care of many doctors. In fact, back then, Jewish law gave no fewer than 11 cures for such a condition. And my guess would be that she had tried all of them and nothing had worked. She was broke. She had spent everything she had. She was exhausted physically, emotionally, financial resources were gone. And instead of getting better, she only got worse. But as you read this story, you discover that that's about to change. Because she is about to experience a miraculous encounter. Verse 27 tells us that she heard about Jesus. She must have heard about all the miracles that he was performing. She knew that her only hope for recovery was to have an encounter with this man who performed miracles. But here's the problem. By the time she gets to him, he is surrounded by other people. Verse 24 tells us that large crowds pressed around him, which is pretty much true of Jesus everywhere he went. Large crowds pushed around him. I don't know if you've ever been invited to some kind of a dinner party or some kind of event where there was some important person there, however you want to describe that. Everybody wants to talk to him. You're pushing and shoving. You're trying to get up there to talk to that person. And, and most, of, most of the people don't get to talk to whoever that person is. Everybody wants to meet that person. But again, keep in mind, that Jesus is on his way to heal the daughter of Jairus, the most important man in the community. I mean, Jesus is on an important mission. So what are the odds that he would interrupt that mission and stop to take care of her needs? But this woman has exhausted all of her resources. She is at her wit's end. You ever been at your wit's end? You ever been just at the place where, man, I don't know what else to do. I've tried everything. I'm at my wit's end, and she knows that she has to get to Jesus and take the risk that he will meet her needs. Now, I don't know what your technique would have been to get Jesus' attention, but I think I would have been yelling, I'd have been screaming, jumping up and down, waving my hands, you know, anything I could do, you know, hold up a placard that says John 3.16, you know, I, I don't know what I would have done to get his attention. But according to verse 28, this woman just thinks, if I can just touch his clothes, I know I'll be healed. I don't even need to look at Jesus' face. I don't need him to turn and lay his hands on me. I don't need him to anoint me with oil. I don't need him to preach a sermon about healing or faith. All I need to do is just reach out and touch the hem of his garment. That 
faith. And understand that for this woman, it is a huge, risky decision. Because for her to reach out and touch Jesus means there's a great probability that she will touch other people along with that. And if that happens, and someone recognizes her, she'll be rebuked, and she could say goodbye to any kind of cure in her life. So what choice does she have? She's at her wit's end. She has no money, no friends, no clout, no solutions. All she has is this crazy idea that Jesus can help her and a great hope that he will. Do you and I possess that kind of faith? Here we are at the beginning of a brand new year. We hope it'll be the best year we've ever had, a great year. But our world is filled with chaos and turmoil. Our economy, everything. We we can name off all the things that cause us fear and, and struggle in our lives. Do we have that kind of faith? Do you and I, as we look at our own personal life issues, as you look at the challenges before you as a church... Do we have a crazy idea that Jesus will help us? And do we have an enduring hope that that says he will meet our needs? Beginning of the year is always a good time to assess our lives. Some people call them resolutions. I'm not big on resolutions. If you made any, you've probably already broken them by now. But a time of assessment of our lives. Where have we been in last year? Where are we going to go in this year? What would we like to see happen? What is God saying to us as we move in to a new year? As you assess your life, maybe all you have in your life right now is a crazy idea and an enduring hope. Maybe you have nothing to give, but you are hurting, and all you have to offer the Lord is your hurt. I believe he likes nothing more than for us to come and offer him our hurt, to offer him our struggles, to offer him our fears, our anxiety, our anger, whatever it might be that we're holding on to that's keeping us from enjoying the fullness of his spirit in our lives. Let me encourage you to do that today. Let me encourage you to step out and reach out and believe God for a miracle. I want you to notice this with me this morning in this story from Mark's gospel. Only one person was commended that day for having faith. It wasn't a wealthy giver. It wasn't a loyal follower. It wasn't an acclaimed teacher. It wasn't even the most important man in the community when he came to ask Jesus to come and heal his daughter. It was a hurting, penniless outcast who grabbed onto her crazy idea and her enduring hope that Jesus could and would help her and meet her at the point of her need. Her hope was that Jesus would be there and that Jesus would show up. I often wonder if we have that kind of faith, that Jesus will be there, that Jesus will show up. I attend a men's Bible study where we live, and and I've had the privilege of teaching it two or three times, but um, once they found, I went in incognito and didn't tell them I was a pastor, but once they found out, then I somehow become the substitute teacher now and then. But in that group of guys, they decided to form a Christian care committee to go to people in in our community and to pray for them, to anoint them with oil, to pray for healing. We have a a lot of illness, a lot of sick people in our community. And so the first time we went, the guy who leads this committee and another guy myself went, and we spent some time with this gentleman and his wife 
and uh, had a great conversation, uh, prayed for them, anointed them with oil, and, and asked God to heal him. And um, a, few, a week or so went by, and the leader of this care group said to me one day, he said, you know, we prayed for Brody, and I talked to him the other day, and he is amazingly much better. And I said, why are we so surprised? <laughs> why are we so surprised when we step out in faith and we do the exact thing that God has told us to do in the scriptures? And God responds, at least this time the way we wanted him to, you know? Why are we so surprised when that happens? To believe that Jesus would be there and that Jesus would show up. Maybe that's another definition of faith. A conviction that Jesus can and a hope that he will. Sounds pretty much like uh, Hebrews 11.6. When without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith is the belief that God is real and that God is good. I get, the, I get the idea sometimes that a lot of people think faith is some kind of mystical kind of experience. It's some kind of vision that you get at midnight. But the truth is, faith is a choice to believe. To believe that the God who made it all hasn't left it all. That he still sends light into the darkness and that he responds to those who step out by faith. To trust him and to believe him. When we step out and reach out to the God who knows and loves us. Now, I'm sure as you read scripture, at times you're impressed by the people you're reading about and the individuals, and you end up saying, boy, I'd like to be that person. I'd like to be that guy. I'd like to be that woman. You know, I'm not, I'm not anxious to have any kind of physical problem like this woman had as I think about her and as I study this passage of scripture. But I do have to tell you, I am greatly impressed with this woman's courage. She had no guarantee of what would happen. I believe that she hoped Jesus would respond. She prayed for it. She longed for it, but she really didn't know if he would. All she knew was that Jesus was standing right there before her. And she believed that he could do something that would meet her need, and that's faith. Faith is not the belief that God will do everything we want or do it the way we ask him for it. But faith is the belief that God will do what is right in your life. This woman knew she needed help, and she believed that Jesus could give her the help that she needed. And when her desperate situation met the dedication and love and compassion of the Savior, a miracle occurred. Have you ever seen a miracle? I know this church has seen some great miracles. What does a miracle look like? I always like to go to the dictionary and see what the worldly definition is of some of our spiritual terms. Oh, Mr. Webster's pretty close. He says a supernatural event regarded as due to divine action. Not my action, divine action. One of the acts worked by Christ which revealed his divinity. I also like the way nine-year-old Danny explained a miracle. He comes bursting out of Sunday school one morning like a wild stallion, his eyes darting back and forth. He's trying to find either his mom or his dad. And finally, after a quick search, he finds his dad and he begins to yell, man, that story of Moses and those people crossing the Red Sea was great. Well, of course, his, his dad is very impressed because he's, he's glad that the nine-year-old is actually listening to something in Sunday school. And so he encourages Danny. He says, well, Danny, tell me a little bit more about what you learned. And 
Danny says, well, the Israelites got out of Egypt, but Pharaoh and his army chased after them, so the Jews ran as fast as they could until they got to the Red Sea. The Egyptian army was getting closer and closer. Man, Danny's dad is really impressed. He says, Danny, tell me more. So Danny says, so Moses got on his walkie-talkie and told the Israeli Air Force to bomb the Egyptians. While that was happening, the Israeli Navy built a pontoon bridge so the people could go across. And you know what, Dad? They made it! Well, by now, Dad's a little shocked, thinking, what kind of Sunday school do I send my children to? What are they teaching in that Sunday school? And so he says, Danny, is that really the way they taught you the story? Danny put his head down. He says, no, not exactly, Dad. But if I told you the way they told it to us, you would never believe it. Well, that's a miracle, isn't it? It's a miracle. And you know what? Probably every miracle looks different. A miracle happens, we say, oh, God, do that again over here. And even if he does do it over here, it's probably not the same. It doesn't look the same. As I work with pastors and, and I've seen miracles take place, I have one that comes to mind of happened just not quite a year ago. We'd attended a large church on the west side of Nashville and uh, had the opportunity to talk to the pastor afterwards a little bit and told him what I did. And he said, oh, I'd love to hear more about that. So, you know, call my secretary and set up an appointment. So I did. And, and this guy's a young guy. He's traveling all over the world. He's writing books. He's speaking at every conference there is, you know, and all this stuff. And and so his secretary, this was like in February, and his secretary says, that, well, I think you could get to see him um, about the end of June. He has an opening. I said, June? And she said, but we do have a campus pastor, an associate pastor, and he'd be happy to meet with you. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I want to meet the head dog. You know, I don't want to meet the associate guy. I want to go right to the top. And so I said, okay. So we set up an appointment a couple of weeks down the road. It was a Monday. I'd taken Linda down to, one of our, do to our daughters so she could spend some time with her and do something. I don't know what they were doing, but... It was raining all day, and um, this church is about 30 miles from where we live, so it was farther than that from my daughters, and I'm thinking, man, it's raining. I don't want to drive all that way to see the associate pastor. Why would I want to do that? I, I want to see the head guy. And I kept thinking, oh, maybe I'll just call and cancel, and, but you know, something inside said, no, you aren't supposed to do that, so I went ahead, and I drove over there, and I met this guy, and I spent about an hour and a half with him. I told him a little bit of my story, and then I said, tell me your story. And for an hour and a half, he dumped his life on me. And some of it wasn't very pretty. And we shared together. And some of his story had to do with the struggle he was having with pornography. And he never looked at it on his computer. But he had all the apps he needed on his iPhone. When he was laying in bed at night beside his wife and she was asleep, he would be scrolling through the apps on his iPhone, looking at pornography. And I called him by name and I said, you know, if you were an alcoholic and you told me that, and I told you the only way to get help and to get off that was to stop drinking alcohol, would you do it? Yeah. What if I told you the only way for you to get well in this is to give up your iPhone? Oh, man, how could we live without our cell phones? I said, if it met your wife, your family, your ministry, would you be willing to do that? We shared that day, and he made some commitments to me. And uh, the next Monday, I emailed him, 
to see how he was doing with those commitments. And I said, by the time we get done, you're either going to love me or hate me. Because I'm going to stay on your case until I see something happen in your life. And God began to work in his life in a, in a miraculous way. A lot of people go through long times of, of recovery for those kinds of addictions. For whatever reason, God chose to touch his heart and touch his life over those next two or three weeks. And in two or three weeks, he sent me an email and he said, Lyle, I am free. I am free from that addiction and that bondage in my life. It wasn't because of me. I left that meeting that day and I said, thank you, Jesus. It was a God moment. It was a moment when God showed up. I asked him later, I, you know, I left and I thought, did I have a neon light on my forehead that said dump all your stuff on me? And later we met, you know, met for lunch a month or so later and I said, why did you do that? He said, I don't know. But I just knew that I could trust you. You were a safe person and I had to tell somebody. And over and over again I find that pastors need a safe place, a safe person, a confidential place. God helped me uh, back in September to launch my first pastor support group. Uh, like I had six of them out here. I've got the first one now back in Mount Juliet. And it's got five or six guys that are in it. And when I asked him about it, and the first time we met, one of the guys said, you know, I have, I have no place to go, to be honest and open. I can go to my denominational meetings and, and that, but hey, you know, if I share really what's going on inside of me, there's a pastor there that hears that he might later become my district superintendent, and I might not get a church because he knows my life. I have no safe place to come and share what's going on in my life. You also might be interested to know that a guy challenged me where we live to just start a support group for men. And so I've started a support group at Del Webb where we live, and I've got about six guys in there. Most of them come out of a military background, but it's, it, I said, man, I do that for pastors because I know how pastors think, but these guys are normal guys, not pastors. You know, and they come from all different walks of life. But I'll never forget the first time we met, one of the guys started sharing as I explained what I wanted this group to look like and what I wanted us to do. And he said, this guy actually was a guy who lived in Laguna Beach and had moved to, to Mount Juliet. He said, where were you 40 years ago when I needed you? There's lots of stuff going, inside our going on inside our lives. And people need help. It may not look like a miracle to us, but it may be a miracle to them. Here was this hurting woman. You see, the fact in all this is she did something to demonstrate her faith. And it's easy to talk a good game of faith. It's easy to preach about faith. But do we do anything to demonstrate our faith? Faith begins when we do something. Faith begins when we reach out. Faith begins when we take that first step. Faith doesn't happen when we just sit and do nothing. Faith is an action word. And the wonderful part is God is always near, always available, and responds to those who sincerely seek him. We're starting 2012. I want to ask you this morning, my challenge to you is, what do you, do you and I need to do in this year that will demonstrate that we are on a faith journey, not just a spiritual journey? Maybe you need to write a letter to someone. Maybe there's someone that you've been avoiding, someone that you've been struggling with. I was just talking to a friend Friday night after we got here, and she was telling a story about a lady that 
that just mistreated her on something very, very silly. And I said, did that just happen? And she said, no, it happened five years ago. I said, you mean to tell me you're holding on to that five years after this silly thing happened? Maybe we need to write a letter. Maybe we need to work on mending a broken relationship. Maybe we need to ask someone for forgiveness or forgive someone else. Maybe we need to call a counselor. Maybe there's something that we need to confess. We've confessed it to God, but maybe we need to confess it to a friend who will be confidential and safe. Maybe we need to be baptized. Maybe we need to go out and feed some hungry people. Maybe we need to pray more or teach or go and serve. I don't know. I'm just challenging us this morning to say, in this new year, in 2012, let's do something that demonstrates that we are on a faith journey, not just a spiritual journey. I believe God honors radical risk-taking faith. Now, I want you to see, we're out of time, I want you to see the marvelous results of this story. Two very interesting things happen. Mark records two responses of Jesus. First of all, Jesus heals before he knows it. Verses 29 to 30, we see that the power left him automatically and instantaneously. Immediately, she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd, and he asked, who touched my clothes? It was almost like God short-circuited the system and the divine nature of Jesus was one step ahead of the human nature of Jesus. And this woman's great need summoned Jesus' help. But I want you to notice something. As best I can read this scripture, there was no neon lights flashing. The band didn't start playing. There was no razzle-dazzle fanfare. It was not a Hollywood moment. It was a holy I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking, Lord, I don't need a Hollywood moment. I don't need razzle-dazzle and fanfare. I don't need skyrockets going off. But I do need a holy moment. I need to know the holiness of God, the power and the anointing and the inflowing of the Holy Spirit in my life so that those moments are holy moments because Hollywood moments don't last. But holy moments. The Holy Spirit comes to give us power. Don't miss the, the disciples' reaction. I think it's quite humorous. Jesus said, who touched me? The disciples say, you see the people crowding against you, and yet you ask who touched me? What are you, Jesus? Everybody's touching you. How would you know what's going on here? The second thing that Mark tells us is that Jesus calls this woman daughter. Notice verse 34. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, what makes this so significant is that this woman is the, this is the only time that Jesus calls any woman anywhere daughter. Can you imagine how that must have made her feel? Who could remember the last time that she had heard a word of affection that was addressed to her? Who could remember the last time that kind eyes had looked into her eyes? She was an outcast. Nobody wanted to be around her. And Jesus calls her daughter. You see, to those who are loved, a word of affection is a morsel. But to those who are starved for love, a word of affection can be a feast. 
And that day, Jesus gave this woman a banquet. He gave her a banquet. And so my question for you today is, how is your faith? What do you need for Jesus to do for you today? What step of faith do you need to take in your life this morning? Maybe you've never invited Christ into your life to be your Lord and to be your Savior. Today would be a good day to do that. Maybe you're struggling with some other difficult issue in your life. Remember our story of Ben Patterson at the beginning? Reach out, I will take your hand and pull you to safety. Jesus says that to us today. My son, my daughter, my child, my church. Exercise your faith. Step out, reach out. I'll take your hand. I'll pull you to safety. There's no stronger hand that you can grasp than the hand of Jesus. Maybe 2011 has not been your best year. Maybe 2011 has been a year of struggle, a year of difficulty. But you're ready for this year to be a year of faith, a year of perseverance. I invite you this morning to take a long, long, hard look at Jesus. Can you think of any reason whatsoever not to trust him? Whatever your need is today, reach out and touch Jesus because I believe he always honors a genuine step of faith. Will you join me in prayer, please? Father, your word is clear. There are no doubts in our mind that you have called us to live a life of faith. And I'll be the first to admit, Lord, that sometimes the fears grow bigger than my faith. We know that the enemy is the one who plants those fears, those feelings of anxiety and worthlessness and all of that in our hearts and minds. And so we thank you today that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. I pray that you will continue to challenge us as we move further into this new year. I pray that you'll challenge us as individuals. I pray that you'll challenge this church. We're soon going to be ordaining some new elders. And as those elders begin to work together, and as they come together month after month to seek you, may you give them great hearts of faith. To discover what it is that, God, you want to do in this place to reach more people with the wonderful message of Jesus Christ. Father, we are grateful today that the psalmist declares that you, the Lord, is my strength, my shield from every danger. And so I will trust in him with all my heart. He helps me and my heart is filled with joy. I burst out in songs of thanksgiving. Oh God, may each of us, as we seek you, may we come to know you in a deeper way. And whether we're an opera singer or we can't carry a tune in a bucket, Lord, let our song and our praise burst out in songs of thanksgiving as we trust you, as we walk this faith journey. May you be honored and glorified. For we pray this in Christ's name.